When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is season two of Killer Destinations. All right, we are recording live from Chattanooga, Tennessee at Jennifer Edge's Literary Inc. Convention, and we want to thank her, thank Mainline Tattoo for inviting us to do so. Now, you guys are going to be privy to something that nobody else knows that we do. We have a ritual <laughs> before every every episode that we record. We have Prosecco. And <laughs> usually usually they're not in plastic cups, but Yeah, exactly. But, but it works well. But that's okay. We're we good. got this from our Hurley Davidson friends. Exactly. So, they're in the booth two doors yeah. down from us. So we're so good. We, so we do this and we say the same thing every time. Here's to episode eighty. Eighty. And we have to drink, otherwise it doesn't count. Mazel tov. There we go. Usually there we go. it's cold. <laughs> exactly. But that's okay. Beggars can't be choosers. Exactly. Okay. Today's destination is Nashville, Tennessee. Nashville was founded in 1779 by James Robertson and John Donaldson, who named it after Francis Nash, a Revolutionary War hero. Nashville became a major railroad hub and a center of the cotton trade in the 19th century and later a leader in healthcare, publishing, and education. Nashville is nicknamed Music City for its role in the development of country, rock, blues, gospel, and for its famous venues like the Grand Old Opry and the Ryman Auditorium. Nashville is the most populous city in Tennessee, and although it gets thousands of tourists every year, residents will tell you it is a family-oriented community. But in 2006, a widely publicized trial showed people that blood is not always thicker than water. <coughs> Usually I'd smoking those unfiltered camels. <laughs> All right. At midnight on Friday, August 15th, 1996, Nashville residents Larry and Carolyn Levine received a phone call from their son-in-law, Perry March. He told them that their daughter, his wife Janet, had left him. Now, Perry was really close with the Levines, and in fact, Janet and Perry would both talk to Mrs. Levine individually for kind of relationship counseling, that kind of thing. So he was very willing to tell them that the reason she had left is that she was tired of being the one to do all the chores, being the one to take care of the kids and everything they're doing. So she wrote him a list and said, I'm going to pack my bags. I'm going to be gone for 12 days. Take care of everything. So he tells the Levines this. They're, of course, concerned and go and see him the next day. And when they were there, he showed them the letter of what it was. It was a typewritten letter. It was super long with this huge list of chores. At the top of it, it said Janet's 10-day vacation or 12-day vacation. She had made him sign and date it on the bottom. And it included things like feed the children nutritious food. These are things moms are going to be like when well, we do this every day. Do the children's laundry, pay the bills, make sure the children have a bath every day, and pay attention to the kids and spend time with them and don't pawn them off on my mom and dad. This totally reminded me of how dad say, I'm babysitting the kids. And the moms are like, you're not babysitting, they're your children. <laughs> exactly. My husband was totally guilty of that. <laughs> 
So the Levines were concerned because this behavior was so atypical of their daughter that when they left Perry and Janet's house that day, they actually went to the airport and drove around the parking lots looking for her car to see if they had some kind of clue as to where she might have gone. Because remember, 1996, no cell phones. So a little bit about Perry and Janet. They met at the University of Michigan. He was a senior and she was a sophomore when they met and apparently they immediately hit it off. Um, so he graduated from the university in 1983 and moved to Chicago where he became a management trainee for a brokerage house. Six months later, she left Michigan and met him in Chicago. They lived together and she began taking classes at the Art Institute. Now, as a side note, I love Chicago. Both my parents are from Chicago. And when I was 10 years old, I had this this summer. It was sort of like a stand-by-me summer. Did you find a dead body? (laughs) Short of a dead body, everything happened in Chicago that summer. (laughs) I was 10. I had a cousin who was 14. I thought she was so cool. And I was highly honored when she was like, do you want to smoke a cigarette? And I was like, yes. And why we smoked on her parents' roof is beyond me, but that's where we smoked. But anyway, it was a summer that was that made me fall in love with Chicago. All we did was like ride bikes and it was wonderful. In fact, my one more little story. My sisters were riding double on a bike and we weren't used to railroad tracks. We're from California. So and they, they were like five and seven. And they were five and seven. Yeah, they so they, they hit these railroad tracks and they eat it. One of my sisters splits her lip, knocks her tooth out. The other one has scuffs all over her face. Some man drives by and sees them bleeding profusely, puts them in the car doesn't kidnap them, drives them to my aunt's house where my mother is playing pinochle with her sisters and drinking pop and smoking cigarettes. <laughs> and does my mother take my sisters to the doctor? No, no, she doesn't. She believes that everything could be solved with a butterfly Band-Aid. And whiskey. <laughs> and whiskey, yeah. My parents gave us whiskey when we were sick. Yeah. <laughs> but they, they were nice enough to put a teaspoon of brown sugar. It was mostly when we had coughs. Anyway, mostly. so. Yeah, exactly, but I love Chicago. Anyway, so Perry and Janet are living in Chicago and whatever, living life, and she's doing her art. She's a very creative person. And a little bit about their family. Perry was from a military family, and his father retired from the Army as a lieutenant colonel, but he didn't see any dramatic action. He was actually a pharmacist in the military for many years. Perry's mother was an at-home mom, um, but she overdosed on opioids when he was nine years old. Now, at the time... Autopsy reports didn't say suicide. They would say things like, died at home. So she died at home. Everybody understood it to be suicide. Anyway, so Perry and his, he had a brother who wound up being an attorney in Chicago and a sister who wound up living just outside of Chicago. Once the kids were old enough to move out of the house, Perry's father, the lieutenant colonel, left Illinois and went to retire in Mexico. Janet, on the other hand, had a very privileged upbringing. Her father was originally from New York, and he came to Vanderbilt Law School, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, so he came to Vanderbilt Law School, wound up opening a law practice in Nashville, and became very, very noteworthy. And was wealthy. Very wealthy <laughs> and very well-respected in the legal community. So they had very different upbringings. And uh, Janet was probably a bit of a princess. Yeah, she was you know, known just to be based a bit on of a princess, but we've read. She was the only daughter. She had an older brother, just the two of them. And so, of course, they were spoiled. Mm-hmm. And so Janet is in Chicago and her parents want her to come back to Nashville. They wanted her and her then boyfriend to be there. So Mr. Levine puts together kind of an offer he hopes Perry can't refuse. He said, you come to Nashville, I will pay for you to go to Vanderbilt Law School. 
not just pay for him to go, they would pay all of their living expenses for all three years of law school, leading up to the bar, everything. And Janet, of course, Janet, yeah, that's her name. (laughs) (laughs) See, this is what we usually cut out. (laughs) Exactly, the unedited version here. Exactly. But Janet, of course, wanted to come home. You know, she's super close to her parents. She was a princess. So it worked out really well for her. And so Perry was like, okay. So in 1985, this is two years after they were in Chicago, they moved down to Nashville and Perry started law school. Two years after that, they got married. And there is a rumor. And we we found, you know, like the problem, and I think we've talked to some of you as we've been here, newspapers are usually not correct. It's hard to find, but we've read it in a couple papers, but not in the court record, which is what we always use to make sure we get the best information. But there was a rumor going around that Janet actually is the one who did the proposing because Perry was just taking his darn sweet time and she didn't want to wait anymore. So mm-hmm. we don't know, but that's what and we And this got. whole time the parents were paying for everything and yeah. bought them a condo? A duplex. Yes. So. And, but it wasn't just like, you know, your parents were like, here's $2,000, figure out how to make it work. It was, they were paying for lavish vacations and, you know, all sorts of things. So it's, we all kind of want that life to, to a point, <laughs> to a point. To a exactly. point, exactly. Raise your hand. Yeah. <laughs> Even into their marriage, her parents were paying their credit cards. Yeah. So yeah. Talk about a sugar daddy. Anyway, I had a different word on the other person, but you know, that's just exactly. (laughs) So a year after they get married, Perry graduates from law school and he gets a job at one of the top firms in Nashville. So he stays there for a few years. And after he was, I think he worked there three or four years. He then left and went to work for his father-in-law's firm, which worked out really well. His father-in-law loved having them around. They were, the families were really very, very close. So by 1994, they have two children. Perry has this new job with his father-in-law and Janet is actually a very, she's kind of up and coming, but very well respected as an author and, or as an artist and as a children's book illustrator. So things are really kind of rosy. Now talking about the Levines buying stuff for the family, they bought Perry and Janet a four acre home in Forest Hills, which I understand is a very exclusive part of Nashville. I see all these heads nodding. (laughs) (laughs) And Janet at 31 years old got to create her dream home which I'd like to do it and I'm a little older than 31. (laughs) Don't laugh. (laughs) Anyway, so she gets to create her dream home. They move in in the summer of 1995. It was less than a year later that she takes this 12-day vacation. So, wait, Wait, I forgot one part, sorry. Yeah. Her parents bought the house and they were the ones to finance it. They held the note on it. So they technically own the house. Yes. And by this time, did Perry... He was already working for his yeah, father Yeah, he was, he was working for his father-in-law at this time. So he's being paid from the firm. His parents are very involved in paying all their expenses and carrying and their marriage, on the house. And, and yeah. Exactly. So Janet takes off, and now her parents are very concerned because she doesn't do this. She's buddies with her mom. And so her mom, two days after Janet left, says, we have to call the police. And Perry convinces her, no, you know, we had a big blow-up. She said she was going to be back in 12 days. She's going to be back in 12 days. And then Perry's brother, who is this attorney in Chicago, supports Perry and says she's coming home. Don't get the police involved. So Perry convinces Mrs. Levine that that Janet would just be embarrassed if the police got involved. So Mrs. Levine says, okay, okay, fine. We'll wait 12 days. Perry then calls his father in Mexico and says, you know what, Dad? My wife left me. I need help with the kids. Can you please come to Tennessee? So dad hops in the car and drives like 1,500 miles from Mexico so he could come, stay with his son, and help out with the kids. Now, Mrs. Levine was figuring, okay, 
Before Janet left, she meticulously planned her son's sixth birthday. There is no way she is going to miss this birthday. Well, the birthday rolls around, she is not to be seen. So Perry tells his mother-in-law, look, I don't want to explain to people that Janet left me, so I'm just going to lie. And so Mrs. Levine's like, okay, you do what you got to do. So he tells people, Janet's in California visiting relatives, and she has an ear infection, so she can't fly. And so that was just the lie that they kind of put together for the son's birthday party. The birthday party was on a Sunday. The next day, Monday, was going to be her son's first day of school. So Mrs. Levine's like, she's gonna be there for that. She'll never miss this. Well, she didn't show up. So now Mrs. Levine is like, oh, no, 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 no. This is scary. It's day 13. So Mrs. Levine goes to the police and the police are like, she's been gone almost two weeks. All right, so they kick into action. They start looking for her car and they find the car five miles from the March's residence and it's parked in an apartment complex and they don't know anybody at this apartment complex. So the police search the vehicle and it's in disarray. They find clothing, they find stuff, but more importantly, they find her driver's license and they find her passport. Things that you must have if you're going on vacation. So now this missing persons investigation turns into a homicide investigation. And now that the police are looking at it in a different way, they're of course executing search warrants for the house and the property. Four acres is a lot to cover. They actually bring in recruits from the police academy so that they can have more boots on the ground, but they're not taking this lightly. They bring in a helicopter with heat detection equipment. They bring in cadaver dogs. They bring in divers for the ponds that are on the four acres that they have. And they consulted not just one, but two psychics and didn't find anything. Now, the day before the search, Perry had found out through his attorney that the police were really interested in his computer hard drive. So the next day when they're doing this big search of the house, the police said, please take us to your computer. And he did. And the hard drive was gone. That's just all there is to it. But what's interesting is during all of this going on, Perry's doing a media blitz. He is talking to every Nashville newspaper, every news station that he can talk to saying, I'm innocent. I know what the rumors are. It's a small community here in Nashville. I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. But what's interesting too is that tensions had started fraying between Perry and the Levines as all of this is going on. And Mrs. Levine had approached Perry and said, you know, now that it's on the news, we gotta worry about the kids because one of their children at this point was two, but the other one was six years old and he was in school. So Mrs. Levine and Perry talked to a child psychologist together and said, how do we explain this to our kids? How do we help them deal with all of this? But Perry found out that Mrs. Levine actually called the son's teacher so that she could have a further conversation with her and just say, this is what's going on at home. Please help him. If anybody's, you know, anything's happening, let us know. Perry finds out and says, you're never to call the school ever again, period. So three months after Janet left, so this is November of 1996, after she disappeared, her parents decide that they need to accept the fact that she is not coming home. So they hold a memorial service and it was very well attended. A lot of Mr. Levine's colleagues, family, friends, it was very well attended. They were very well known in the community. All these people showed up, Perry did not show up and he would not allow the children to go. His position was, my wife is missing. She is not murdered, she is alive and we are not going to this memorial. So of course the Levines were so upset 
they felt their daughter was completely disrespected. And then a month later in December, so a month after the memorial, Perry took the kids and moved to Chicago. So remember, the Levines are carrying the note on their house. Perry is obviously no longer going into the office. He's no longer getting a paycheck. So the Levines are like, great, we're calling the note due. And so he takes the kids and goes to Chicago. Well, now the Levines are upset. Their grandkids are in Chicago. So they petition for, for some visitation rights. And they also petition, they file a petition with probate court for the disposition of her property. And they were saying most of what Janet had was separate property and it should go to her children. Perry should get none of it. And they were also fighting over things like her paintings and, and things that he just scooped up and took to Chicago without offering them anything. So Mrs. Levine was particularly heartbroken about a lot of her personal art. So this court battle wound up lasting years. In fact, there are many appellate opinions written on it. One of them, the Court of Appeal admonishes both sides, knock it off. If you guys don't knock it off, there's not gonna be lefting anything left for the kids, so stop it. So Perry is represented, now remember he's living in Chicago, so he's being represented by his brother, the attorney, Ron. Ron shows up to court. It's the second court appearance regarding visitation issues. And Ron tells the judge, oh, by the way, Perry now lives in Mexico with his kids. So the judge is shocked. The Levines are heartbroken because at this point, they're like, Perry killed our daughter and now he has our grandkids in Mexico. So everybody was totally devastated. And now we take a quick break for more Prosecco. Exactly. <laughs> It's important. Exactly. I know. We get funnier the more that we this drink. Is, this, so. is, this is all the stuff that's always edited out. Exactly. Like you hear the clinking in the background and anyway. Yeah, so nobody actually knows we're clanking glasses and things like that. So now they do. Now, in the course of their investigation, the police uncovered that Perry was hiding a huge secret. After Perry had left the home and moved from Chicago or moved from Nashville to Chicago, a lot of Janet's boxes had been stored in their garage. So Mrs. Levine is going through it, you know, trying to figure out what she should keep and what she shouldn't keep. And she came across a series of letters that she was so concerned with, she turned over to police because she believed, and then they believed that this may have been the thing that provided the motive for murder. Five years before Janet disappeared, when Perry was working for his original law firm, a paralegal there received several uh, salacious letters, very descriptive letters from an anonymous source. They were typewritten, couldn't match the handwriting, anything like that. And the person who wrote them said he was married and now knew that married sex was super boring. And if she was interested in, and she was married as well. So he said, you know, if you're interested in, you know, cheating with me, then let me know. And then went on to describe all the things he wanted to do with her or to her. So the paralegal actually did the smart thing. She took it to her boss and was like, I don't know what this is, but please fix it. So the law firm, and it really was like one of Nashville's like top two elite firms, they don't want this to get out. So they hire a private investigator to come in. In the letters, it had said, if you want to carry on this affair with me, here are the steps you need to take to let me know. And basically it was, you know, there's those little pockets inside library books where usually there was a card back in the day. Well, the law firm has a couple libraries. So it was go to this library, get this book out, put a note in it, and I'll know it's you. 
and I'll know you want to go forward with it. So the private detective, they set up a hidden camera in this library. And we were laughing because in 1991, right. how hidden was this camera? It was like the size Probably of a small weighed like Toyota. 40 pounds. Exactly. And, and the size we're of a We're going to put it on car. this stack and hope nobody sees it. Exactly. No teddy cams, none of that exactly. kind of stuff. But it worked. The video showed the author of the notes was Perry March. So under this cloud, because of course now the partners go to him, everybody agrees to keep everything a secret and Perry agrees to resign. Which is so funny. Today it would be on Facebook. There'd be like, you know, DMs on Instagram. It'd be on Twitter. Right. We'll keep it a secret, exactly. but the universe will know. Right, yeah. exactly. And, and that was the interesting thing to me. And that was why when we were first looking at this, it was how does he go work for his father's firm, which was also a very high profile firm. Mm -hmm. how, do, how does he go work from that based on what happened? You would think there would be a little bit of gossip, at least in the Nashville legal community. And they locked that down. Yeah. So he goes to work for his father-in-law. And so everything's taken care of. Now, one of the things that happened though is Perry agreed to pay the paralegal $25,000. It was half up front, went on a payment plan for a couple of years, but at the time Janet disappeared, he still owed her half of that money. Now, what we find out later is that on August 16th, which is the day after Janet disappeared, the paralegal had a letter that was postmarked on the, that day from Perry saying, I know I'm late paying you this last half of the money I owe you, and I can't pay you right the second, but I'll be able to pay you back in two months. So this was super interesting. And what then they realized what happened is that Mrs. Levine found original letters, typewritten, but remember back in 96, it's really more obvious, but she found these letters that were typewritten. And then they realized that the letters the paralegal had received were actually copies. So, you know, Perry was like, okay, I'm not going to get caught. They're not going to get fingerprints off yeah, of this. Yeah, he thought I'm gonna he was Mr. Forensic guy. Exactly. I'm not going to like a stamp. Exactly. I'm not going to, you know, whatever. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But, but that's what Mrs. Levine had found. She found the original letters. So Mrs. Levine and the authorities now believed that Janet had found these letters, became irate, confronted Perry, which led him to react and kill her and did all of these things while their five-year-old son and two-year-old daughter were asleep upstairs. Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20 minute video explaining step by step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie. And even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. <laughs> <laughs> After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell. I love that. And I'll come <laughs> over to your house now. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. Or crazy. A little bit. <laughs> So if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to BadlandsFood.com slash KillerD and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash KillerD. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. 
That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Two years after Perry moved to Mexico, so we're in 1998 right now, there's still no body, no identified suspect, and he's living in this town called Ajijic where his father is retired, and it's beautiful. It's on this lake at the base of mountains. It's stunning. It's a resort where a lot of American expatriates and Canadians now live, but it's, I zillowed it. I mean, it's beautiful. Anyway, so he's living there, and he's totally living La Vida Loca. I mean, you know, he's... He's now dating a woman named Carmen. Uh, She brought three kids to the relationship. He brought two, and then they had one together. So even though he was in Mexico, Perry continued to give interviews, particularly to Nashville journalists, about, you know, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. No, I'm not in Mexico for any nefarious reason. I know my wife is alive out there somewhere, that kind of thing. So he was still in the news two years later. And so the Levines are upset. They're like, this guy took our grandkids, took our daughter. So they're pressing for custody, pressing for custody. So they get a Nashville judge to grant them custody. The Levines fly to Mexico with armed bodyguards, go to the kids' school, take them out, get them on a plane and fly to Tennessee. Perry had no idea. So he goes to pick his kids up at school and he's like, what? You know, so he goes I don't think crazy. He said what, but yeah. we don't swear exactly. a lot. On exactly. Podcast, so. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a perpetual battle between Perry the lawyer and Mr. Levine the lawyer. So Perry goes nuts and he files a petition in federal court, you know. So we have this judge in Nashville, the state court judge with Clank and Cajone. He's like, "Yeah, go get him out of Mexico, no problem." And so Perry comes back or he doesn't come back. His lawyer files a petition in federal court, and the federal court judge is like, "No." You can't just go take someone's children from another country and bring them back to Tennessee. Which so, really just proves that federal judges have clankier cojones. Clankier cojones, the exactly. state judges do. Right. So, so the kids have to now go back to Mexico. So the Levines are just like, they're just devastated. But they're not giving up. They're trying, 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 and trying to move forward. And they're continuing their pursuit of what they consider to be justice and all this kind of stuff. So in January 2000... They petition a Tennessee court to declare her legally dead. They did this to try to file a wrongful death lawsuit. Now, that ultimately was not successful, but that was their motivation behind it. That same year, in 2000, the Tennessee bar disbarred Perry because while he was at his father-in-law's firm, it turns out he was stealing client money. So the dad finds out all the shady stuff he was doing with clients and insists that the prosecutors in Tennessee move forward in absentia on a theft case that kind of is a side note. But the Tennessee bar was like, bye, Perry, you're done. You have no more bar license. 
Once Janet was declared legally dead, Perry marries Carmen. And so, again, continues his life in Mexico. So in 2004, so now we're eight years after Janet has disappeared, never to be seen again, he did something so stupid that it changed the course of everything. So Perry sent a photo to the Nashville District Attorney. Now, 2004, Summer Olympic Games, Athens, Greece. I was going to say Athens, Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> Athens, Greece. See what you did? She gets here. It's all Southern. Oh. Athens, <laughs> Athens, Athens, Greece. And he cuts this picture out of a magazine that he sends to the district attorney and says, hey, look, see that? That's my wife. She's alive. She's well. She's in Athens, Greece at a bar with a bunch of her friends. Now, as a side note, everybody who saw that picture was like, that looks nothing like her. But the DA was pissed he was so mad right it, because perry this whole time you know talking to the press he's like poking the bear poking the bear yeah and the da was like it was a straw that broke the camel's back so the da was like okay you know what we're gonna get him he's not untouchable he needs to stop this arrogance he impanels a grand jury even though he doesn't have a body and says here's all the information and a bunch of witnesses they testify they kind of tell the story all of that the grand jury comes back and indicts perry on three charges second-degree murder, destruction of evidence, and abuse of a corpse. So, now that they have this, they need to go to Mexico to get Perry. They put it under seal because they don't want to give it away, but it's under seal in Mexico too. So, Perry finds out and gets an attorney because he wants to fight extradition. That was part of this, is that Mexico was going to expel him and his two children from Mexico as a result of this indictment. So, the feds go down there on August 3rd of 2005 to pick him up. And when they get there, they can't find the children anywhere. Turns out that knowing that the kids were going to be expelled too, remember he's having this back and forth with the Levines, he doesn't want the Levines to get the kids. So his now wife Carmen and his dad actually took the kids, put them on a plane, flew to Chicago so that he could leave them with his brother Ron and Ron's wife. But regardless, Perry was expelled flies to California, handed over to the FBI, gets on an airplane, is taken back to Tennessee. When he got there, $3 million bail was assigned to his case. He couldn't pay it because the Levines aren't paying for him anymore. And he had to go to the Davidson County Jail and await trial. I know this is something. No, you're good. Am I? Oh, this was the important part though. So the DA is bringing charges. There was no crime scene. There was no physical evidence. There were no witnesses and there was no body. The only thing they had going for them is that the Levines, the friends, and law enforcement knew that she'd been missing for more than nine years, and they all just knew Perry was involved. So August of 2006, literally almost 10 years from the date that Janet is last seen, trial begins. And because of all the publicity in Nashville, they actually had to get their jurors from Chattanooga. And so I read a newspaper article that said the district attorney in Nashville was really happy about that because people from Chattanooga are so much smarter. <laughs> I actually believe it's in the court record. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we can't prove it, but I think it's there. Exactly. Anyway, so the prosecution calls a ton of witnesses and they just build this case brick by brick by brick. They're developing motivation and all the circumstantial evidence, beginning with the maid who showed up the day after Janet went missing at 8 a.m. only to find the house completely spotless. The house had already been cleaned. 
So they called the detectives to the stand and the detectives testified about the length of time it took for anyone to inform them that Janet was missing and that it wasn't Perry who brought her disappearance to their attention. And then the moment they want to interview him, he gets an attorney. Anyway, they also talked about the fact that he had a missing hard drive and it was completely inexplicable. The fact that they found Janet's wallet and ID and the fact that Janet had not used her credit cards since the night she went missing. So another person who came to the stand and probably one of the two most anticipated it, yeah, for coming sure. to it was Mrs. Levine. So we've said a couple times that she was really, really close to her mom. And Mrs. Levine had some serious bombshells to drop on this. So she told the jury that Janet and Perry had been having serious marital issues for about the last three years. And in the week leading up to Janet's disappearance, Perry had actually been living at a hotel. She also said that this typewritten letter we told you about, the 12-day vacation and the to-do list, Janet never typed. And this was all typed up with his signature, what have you. And Mrs. Levine testified that when she had been in the house the day after Perry was told them that she had gone off, she saw a yellow legal pad next to his computer that had all of these chores handwritten in his writing, as well as the words 12 weeks, at, 12 days at the top of it that was circled several times. Now, the biggest thing that she dropped on the jury is that the day after Janet disappeared, she and Janet were scheduled to go see a divorce attorney so Janet could start divorce proceedings against him. Now, there were many witnesses who came and testified about a ton of different things and wove this great circumstantial case against Perry, but the prosecution had one ace in the hole. It was their crucial evidence, and it was none other than Perry's father, retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Arthur March. So now we have to back you up. Perry couldn't make bail pending his trial, so he is in the Davidson County Jail. And next to him is a notorious jailhouse snitch, a guy named Nate, and he's in jail for attempted murder, okay? So Nate tells his lawyer, hey, I overheard this guy in the cell next to me talking about wanting to kill his in-laws. So the lawyer goes to the DA and the DA is like, no, we don't believe you. This guy's a liar. We can't rely on a jailhouse snitch. But just in case you're telling the truth, here's a recorder. We want you to record everything that you and Perry discuss from this point forward. So Nate and Perry become friends. They start having these conversations on tape, unbeknownst to Perry, and they plan the murder of the Levines. So Nate pretends that he's gonna get out on bail. And he's like, when I get out on bail, I'll take care of this for you. Don't worry about it. I just need to be paid, that kind of thing. So Perry says, when you get out, call my father, Arthur. He's living in Mexico. He'll give you instructions and he'll tell you where to go, you know, once the deed is done. He'll tell you where to lay low. So Nate's like, gotcha. So Nate says, oh, by the way, I made bail, so I'm gonna take care of this problem for you. And what investigators do is they basically take Nate and move him to a different jail. But now they wanna get Perry's father, Arthur, on video, or excuse me, on a recorded line. So they have Nate call him, and sure enough, Arthur's like, oh, I've been expecting your call. So they have this conversation, and, and Arthur, again, he's like a retired lieutenant colonel, and he's kind of a know-it-all. So he starts telling Nate the best way to kill people and giving him some really fundamental advice, like be sure to wear gloves and don't take off the gloves and make sure you wipe down the crime scene and, you know, helpful tips from your local murderer. So anyway. <laughs> local accomplice, don't make it. Right, local accomplice, that's true. 
I can't step over the line. Yes. Anyway, so people. <laughs> so they get all this information. I want to say the DA had six hours of recording between Perry and Nate and Arthur and Nate. Um, actually, the six hours was just between Arthur and Nate. Okay, so it took a lot of time for him to tell Nate how to kill the Levines. Yeah, I think like 95% of that time was just Arthur talking because he really, like Kathy said, he was known to be that person. He's like, well, if you want to change a light bulb, what you got to do is go get the ladder out of the shit. <laughs> but he would have everybody call him the Colonel. So nobody yeah. called him Arthur. Everybody called him Colonel. Yeah. Anyway, he was that guy. Exactly. So a couple of days later, Nate calls Arthur and says, it's done. I've killed the Levines. I'm heading to Guadalajara. I'll be there at 2.30. Get to the airport and pick me up. Arthur drives to the airport, and instead of picking up Nate, he is picked up by FBI agents who put him on a plane, send him off. Now, after this, he gets taken to Nashville. He is charged. And so both Perry and Arthur are now charged. They are both charged with conspiracy to commit murder, but Arthur gets the additional federal charge tacked on of conspiracy to commit interstate murder for hire. So now Perry has the conspiracy to commit plus the original three charges. Arthur now has the state charge and the federal charge. So because Arthur was now facing seven to 10 years in a federal prison for his role, he did what I really think everybody would do. Right. He rolled on his son. <laughs> He struck a plea deal <laughs> with prosecutors that instead of the seven to 10 years, he would only serve 18 months in a federal prison as long as he agreed to testify truthfully against his son in Janet March's murder trial. And so one of the things the feds did prior to the beginning of Perry's murder trial was take the deposition of Arthur, the colonel. And a deposition is, I mean, it's a question and answer. It's in a conference room, but you're under the penalty of perjury. Everything you're saying is taken down by a court reporter and it holds the same weight as though you're testifying before a judge in court. So they take his deposition. And again, it's part of the deal. He's got to tell the truth and he just spills his guts. So by the time Perry's trial comes around, Arthur's in jail, but he's sick and he can't attend. And if you have a witness that's unavailable, but you have a prior statement from them, you could admit that at trial. So the prosecutor's like, thank you very much, feds. Can I please borrow that videotape? So he shows these jurors in Janet's murder trial, Arthur's deposition. So the jurors get to hear everything. Perry told him that he arrived in Nashville a few days after Janet disappeared. Arthur at the told them. I'm sorry. Arthur told them. What did you I said say? Perry told okay. them. Okay, thank you. So <laughs> this is just for the tape for everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Anyway, so Arthur testified. He arrives in Nashville, and he's there a few days after Janice, Janice's appearance. And Perry says, "Hey, by the way, this is horrible, but Janet and I got into a terrible argument, and I didn't really mean to do it, but I hit her with a wrench and killed her accidentally. It was it was a total accident. It, it was unintentional. All this kind of stuff. So." Perry says, but now you have to help me move the body. So he had taken his wife's body and put it on a neighbor's property. So in the dead of night, with the kids sleeping by themselves, Arthur and Perry go and they retrieve her body and they put it in a leaf bag and they put it in the trunk of the car. They then wait a couple days. They drive to Bowling, Bowling Green, Kentucky. Yeah, Bowling Green, Kentucky. And they start driving around looking for a place to put her body. And they, they see a big pile of brush that they know is going to be burned. Which actually we assume is more of a rural thing because I'm not sure I'd see a pile of brush and be like, 
that's about to be burned. So is it a like Tennessee thing, Kentucky thing? Okay. We, so you would notice- You have to burn brush to get it hot enough to light the tires on fire. <laughs> it's not a oh, that's awesome. Wow. <laughs> anyway, so they place Janet's body in this pile and drive away and just hope for the best. So now Arthur's statement is being taken 10 years after the fact. So of course, immediately federal investigators, they get him in a car and they drive him out there. Well, in the intervening 10 years, that whole area had been paved over and developed. So there was no body to be found. And they were very, very disappointed because it's always difficult to prove murder without a body. So the jurors hear Arthur admitting to everything, impugning Perry and telling them, I'm the one who tore out his hard drive. I was afraid of what the cops were gonna find. During the whole process of this deposition, at one point, one of the prosecutors goes, why did you do this? Why did you help Perry do this? And his answer was super simple. He's my son. So in the end, it was the testimony of Perry's father that nailed Perry's coffin shut. So after the jury deliberated for three days, over 12 hours, they returned with a verdict. Guilty on all four counts. So this is second degree murder. And the reason it was second degree, by the way, is because there wasn't a body. And it was heat of the moment. There was nothing, you know, it's like- It was like an accident. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it, it was an intentional killing without premeditation. Right. Was he and working so, on the car with the wrench in his hand? Yeah, I don't know. Sure. Yeah, sure. exactly. something? Yeah. So it was second degree murder, destruction of evidence, and abuse of a corpse. Plus he now had this fourth conspiracy to commit murder on top of it. And I'd actually read somewhere, and I think you read it too, when on the tapes, Perry had actually said to Nate, the snitch, <laughs> but um, he said to Nate, if the Levines are there and are able to testify, 90% sure, I'm gonna go down. If the Levines are gone, it's probably 20%. So that obviously, and we knew what the motivation was, but he, he really felt everything lived and died with the Levines. So he was found guilty and was sentenced to a total of 56 years in murder, uh, 56 years in prison. <laughs> but what's interesting is that Arthur March's plea deal of 18 months, a federal judge got a hold of it and said, uh, that's not enough time. Right. Prosecutors can make an agreement with you, but it has to be approved by a judge. So instead of the seven to 10 years, though, he got five years in prison. Now, four months into his jail sentence in December of 2006, so just four months after Perry was convicted, Arthur March did die in prison. God rest his soul. Bless his heart. <laughs> Bless his heart. Bless his heart. <laughs> we've learned that since we've been here. We really like that statement. Inappropriate music. 100%. But now, of course, while, while the verdict was vindication for the Levines, and they were super, super grateful to the prosecutors and the detectives because this was 10 years that they knew it happened and they just never gave up. But of course, the sweetest victory came for them when they got full custody and they actually had to fight with Perry's brother for this, but they did get full custody of their grandchildren who at the time were 16 and 12 years old. And if you wanna feel old, they're now 33 and 29. <laughs> right, and it turns out that although he said he married Carmen, he did not. He did not marry Carmen. Because so that's she, what they were telling the judge. She had it, no standing yeah, to take the my, children. If my brother can't get it, send it to my wife. Not only am I married to her, but she adopted the children but was never able to provide paperwork to that. And so we're assuming that they just hope mm -hmm. they would ignore that. So Perry, of course, appealed all of this. And after several unsuccessful appeals, the very last chance he had was the US Supreme Court and they declined to hear his case. So the now 62 year old Perry March is incarcerated at the Northeast Correctional Complex in Mountain City. 
and he will be available or he'll be eligible for parole in 2035. Done. Done, son. (laughs) (laughs) Any questions? Done, son. <laughs> but we did we did inappropriately use "bless your heart." Or at oh, least we did. I did. Oh, was that, that inappropriate? Was, it was inappropriate use. Exactly. I was you checked. Don't say "God bless your heart" to a murderer who dies. No. Oh, but I thought I thought you could use it, it if you're being insult. sarcastic. Well, I don't I'm know. Sorry about that. It's, it's more like "fuck that guy." Yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't strong 100%. enough. One hundred percent. Exactly. No, we no 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 we That's do okay. we do cuss just Sorry. not on the podcast. Just not on the podcast. Sarcastic. Oh, what? Jennifer knows. She picked us up from the airport, and man, did we give her a run for her money. <laughs> oh, no, I see. You, you did use it right. I was wrong. Yeah. The intonation's there. Right? It'd be more like, bless you. Well, bless we just don't, we don't have bless the you. accent down. How about your both okay. right? <laughs> Kathy's a mediator by nature. It's my first live podcast. Yeah. Ours, ours too. You're saying you're an awful person, you're an idiot. Exactly. Okay, okay. <laughs> or you're stupid, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. We're going to send them a book of Southern slang before the next time they come back so that they can do all their homework and then it's on. We are having pronunciation problems. We were told, like, I was told that we said y'all, it was too structured. Yeah. And it, it, it was too more long. like it was Y-A-W-L, like, y'all. Yeah. y'all. 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 I, call then- my, I called my husband and I was like, hug. And he's like, no, stop. <laughs> he's like, you, you sound terrible. That's so fake. And I'm like, all right. Towns and roads like uh, Whitwell. Whitwell. We've been told that. Yeah, Whitwell and then Lafayette. I know what you're talking about. Lafayette. I call it Lafayette. Yeah, that's what we were told in Georgia. Lafayette, or yeah, or we'd say Lafayette, but actually Jennifer's best friend said it's Lafayette. She says it wrong, and I don't care. It's Lafayette. Yeah, it's, it's La what? Lafayette is what we've heard it Lafayette? Is. And I've had people who are like coming from Louisiana and it's like, it's Lafayette. And I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> There's also a road that's in Houston Valley Road. It's uh-huh. in Houston. Oh, how it's funny. Houston. <laughs> 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 there's, and there's a, a place that's like this way from where Chattanooga is and it starts with an O and it's an Indian name. Ultwa. That's Ultwa. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so there was Udawa. That's it. So there. We were talking. He was actually. We were talking to somebody who was a retired Memphis police officer, and he said that he lived there, and that when he talks to people from out of town, they will actually correct him in the pronunciation because they're new and they see it and they're trying to do it phonetically. And at least we know not to do that. One time we screwed up on names. We're really usually pretty good about trying to research the names so mm-hmm. that we don't sound stupid. Like we did one in Nova Scotia. Because it's very easiest for us to sound stupid. It is. <laughs> but we don't want it to be easier. Comes naturally. But there was, we, it was in Nova Scotia and we were looking at words and it was like shubanakity. And we're like, that doesn't look anything like it. But, um, but, the, okay. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the one time we screwed up, oh, did we hear about it? No, I was I like, wow, this is the, a brutal yeah. Rating. When we get more popular, we'll have to do a dramatic reading of our bad ratings. But, it, but have right like now five. it's too soon. Yeah. <laughs> and we really don't have enough to do it more because I think we have like five. Did we leave anything out? Anything that you guys had questions about that so we like, didn't cover? We have no idea about the murder, so we have yeah. no idea if you left exactly. anything out. <laughs> but also it's like if you want to give us suggestions, probably half of what we do are suggestions. What right. we've been given are awesome. A lot of these people are telling us stuff that happened in their city and like their sister was best friends with the murder victim. Right. Because our first episode was done 
on a murder that we grew up with. Exactly. And so that's why it was really important. And my mom was the one who, you know, she always talked to us. Kathy would come over after school every day. And mm -hmm. um, my mom talked to us like adults because she wanted to make sure all of that safety was imparted in us. Yeah, she was super safety, Marie. Yeah, which I've inherited and everybody makes fun of me for, right. including and her. And I came from the total negligent family. We <laughs> totally. locked nothing up. We had open front doors, like nothing. Five kids running wild, like. Yeah, we didn't have that Exact at all. opposite. I'd be like, this is so weird. I'd go to her house and I'd be like, why is the front door locked? It's two in the afternoon, you know, but it was, you know, and it was perfectly air conditioned yeah. and my parents didn't have air conditioned. So I'm like, Oh, I really like it here. Exactly. <laughs> it's perfectly air conditioned because my sister and I would set it when we got home from school. <laughs> yeah. And they had, they had such good manners. So it was, I'd come in, you know, and um, <laughs> I'd be like really hungry. So I'd go to their house starving and they'd be like, what can we get you to eat? And I'd be like, tuna sandwich, please. Like I was so, like I they, the for whatever reason, toasted? they had the best tuna sandwiches. Because <laughs> you but, didn't have to make them yourself. Exactly. So I've listened to a lot of podcasts and a lot of yeah. crime, and one in particular we know that they read. Mm -hmm. I've not listened to your podcast yet before this, but I am ultra impressed. Oh, thank you. Thank you. To, you're totally off script. That is amazing. Well, we do oh, have thanks. a script. We, we just try to. and, yeah. yeah. But you're making eye contact the whole time. Right. You know, and it's really... It, that really well I appreciate that but the truth like we really did we went over this we were concerned like we don't want it to feel scripted and but we we do try to not be on script the entire time yeah. but we're very aware that we have to get a coherent story out we and have we've got to, to get the details that, yeah. that's our key thing is the yeah, details but, but we're across but from, thank you yeah well sure. thank you that's thank you when we talked yeah. it seems like a joke that this one would take 80. Well, if you're doing the work right, right. Yeah. then it should take 60, 80, whatever. Yeah. yeah. We record in my closet. Which is perfect. There's a lot of clothes to buffer yeah, the sound. All the clothes are still there. You know, it's all, take all my shoes out, put the table and the chairs in, and mm -hmm. my dresser's in there, what have you. And it's good because it does mute the sound quite a bit. But we, the table we're at is probably like this, mm -hmm. like this is between us and we've got microphones and our equipment and all this stuff like on the table and our Prosecco glasses. But we always try and make eye contact when we're reading because it is just that. We're not gonna be like, so they deliberated for 12 hours. Yeah, it's like, it is almost like we're telling each other the yeah. story. You and know? we do goof around a little bit more than we have today just because we were but nervous I mean, but, about but, time. But, but yeah, but some episodes were like, there is no humor here. We cannot <laughs> have any humor here. Yeah, it's not even jokes, it's more like just, like commentary, but like, yeah, like she'll say something in a like trigger memory, right. and I'll say something or vice versa. We're like talking about our sisters when yeah, they're in Chicago. Yeah, and then we go to edit because we've like, known each other out. forever, yeah. and so you know that that helps. We exactly, yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.